So we're, we've been in this series now for four weeks. This is week five that we're calling Keeping It 100, right? It's like keeping it real. We're just trying to keep it real. Uh, but, but it also paints on the wall for us. It keeps in front of us this thing that God told us at the beginning of the year that the goal for us was to be uh, 100% of the people who are part of this gathering on Sunday would be part of a small group through the week. Uh, and, and what we've said is that, that that's where real community, real church, whenever you look at scripture, that's what happens. It happens. You know, what we do here is great. It's worship. It's fellowship. It's fabulous. But when you look at scripture for what is real church, and you look at the descriptors, it happens in small groups where you know people well, and they know you well, and you grow together. Uh, and so that's been our goal. So we, we titled this series, Keeping It 100, to try to to focus on what does real church, what does real, um, this real thing of following Jesus look like? Um, and so we ta- we've talked about, you know, very uh, thrilling and uh, th- this is crowd attracting stuff like you have to die. Because, um, of course, you know, that's what everybody's selling now, you know, so you have to die. No, it's like all about you, right? That's what everybody says. But we, sa- that we said that Jesus calls us to take up our cross a call to die, and then we, we, we talked about this call to love one another, love one another the way God loves us, uh, and then Jerry talked a couple weeks ago about the call to be holy, that we're supposed to be a people who are set apart for a purpose, and last week, I talked about the call to love your neighbor, and I was going to talk about the call to love your enemy, except for a lot of times, it's the same people, your neighbor and your enemy, that was a joke, like three of you got it, um, but, but today we're moving on from there a little bit to a, a topic that is just, it's really, really near to my heart. Uh, it's something, you know, when we moved here to plant this church, one of the things that I was passionate about and I'm still passionate about is people who are far from Jesus coming to know him. And it's something that's so near to my heart because I think it's so near to the heart of God. It's this idea of moving in compassion toward the lost. That we who gather here as followers of Jesus, we don't do so because there's some sort of religious thing we're trying to accomplish. We do so because we're moving nearer to the heart of God, which is for those who are far from him. And so I want to talk today a little bit about moving in compassion toward the lost. And this is something that routinely, like I wrote a whole bunch of stuff down, and odds are really good because I care about this so much uh, that I'm probably going to go way off of all this stuff. Because it's just, I want you to get, like, the passion that, that Jesus has and is, that God has put in my heart for people who don't know him. Like, I was one of those people, as were many of you, and as some, maybe some of you are still. These people who are so far from the love of God and yet so near, like, that he's so passionately in love with you. Um, so we're going to look at a piece of scripture. If you guys wouldn't mind, turn to Matthew chapter 9. There's Bibles on several of the columns if you need one. Otherwise, you can... Pull out your phone um, and turn to chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 35, but let me uh, sort of, while you're turning there, kind of get you caught up to what has happened to this point in Matthew 9. So uh, up to this point, Jesus finish, finishes preaching this, this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. You guys familiar with, with that, right? And so Jesus preaches for like three chapters of Matthew. It's actually Matthew writes like three chapters. But Jesus preaches for this really long time, and at the end, they're like, wow, he preaches like one who has authority, not like our teachers who just sort of like quote other people all the time. 
he's like says things that are real. I, I went to this, this has nothing to do with what I, uh, I went to this conference like a week and a half ago in Austin, right? And, uh, and I was uh, listening to these speakers, and you know how conferences go, especially like corporate conferences. I went to this conference, and one of these speakers, this guy, I'm not going to say his name, um, but he's written nine books. And uh, he is very popular among uh, NFL football coaches. And it was just very, like, people, like, really love him. And so, so I'm like, okay, what is, so I'm reading his bio. And he dropped out of college at 19. And he bought a whole bunch of Stoic philosophy books and just consumed these books. Of course, my first thought was, like, why don't people consume scripture this way? Like, this, like he, he had the copies of his original uh, Marcus Aurelius book that was falling apart. And I was like, dude, like, I mean, I bought a new Bible, but like our, our Bible's, fall. I was just like, this is crazy. So this guy's like consuming this stoic philosophy and he stands up, he has an hour and 20 minutes to speak. And he talks for an hour and 20 minutes and in an hour and 20 minutes, I don't think there was one original thought in anything he said. That for like the whole hour and 20 minutes, he just said, as Marcus Aurelius said, blah, 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 blah. As Bill Belichick says, blah, 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 blah. And people love this guy. And I was like, he's not saying anything. He like dropped out of school, read a whole bunch of uh, books on philosophy. And now he's like doing the conference circuit. And I don't know how much they paid this guy, but it's proof positive that you, have, you don't have to have any experience to make money in this country or to say things as though you know what you're talking about. Anyway, it has nothing to do with anything. That, but the, the, the guys at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are like, this guy doesn't talk like our preachers. He's like, our preachers are, are always referencing previous preachers and quoting previous speakers. And they said, Jesus doesn't talk like that. Jesus just says it the way it is, and it is. And you guys have heard that, right? You, you've, you've heard people who, who just say something that's real. You don't have to back it up. You just know, right? It's just boom, ton of bricks, right? So he's like, Jesus just, man, he preaches like the, somebody who has authority. And so then right after that, he heals this guy with leprosy. Then he heals the centurion's servant at a distance. This is like miles. Like the guy's not even there. He's like, just go. He's going to be well. And he is. Then he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He drives out demons. He heals the sick, sick. He calms a storm. He casts out some more demons. Heals a paralyzed man. Heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Raises a dead girl, heals a couple of blind men, drives out a demon that made a man mute. So now we get to the end of chapter 9. This is what Jesus has been doing for like three chapters. And at the, at the end of chapter 9, we get to verse 35. You should have it there. The end of verse 35, here's what it says. This is Matthew summing this up. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus has gathered quite a crowd. He's got this crowd following him, which you would expect to happen, right? I mean, given all the, the other stuff that he's done, you know, of course people are going to flock to him. He healed a whole bunch of people. He raised a dead girl. At the very least, she's going to follow him, right? So he's got this crowd, which is what you would expect to have happen. And, and these people who were healed and, and the people who saw it, they follow him. And they're just like, this is, we're captivated by this guy. It seems like the only enemy, actually, uh, 
that Jesus draws is the religious people who are having their system thwarted. The only people who seem to not like him is they've got to, is the, the Pharisees and the folks who have these false hierarchical systems, right? Like, I'm better than you because I don't have leprosy. I'm better than you because I'm well. I'm better than you because I'm well-trained. I'm better than you. And so the only people that are mad are the people who's, who are having their stuff destroyed. And let me just say at this point, if you decide you want to do ministry like Jesus, that's going to be true of you. If you want to do ministry like Jesus, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's the only real way to do ministry, right? Like, who, uh, it's always Jesus' ministry. You don't have a ministry. I don't have a ministry. We just do, Je- we just participate in what Jesus does. Nobody has their own. You're just doing what Jesus does. If you want to do ministry the way Jesus does, if you walk around healing the sick, and you walk around casting out demons with all that, that, that comes with that, if you go around raising the dead, I want to see some of you guys do that, okay? If you go around restoring sight to the blind, you're going to find yourself surrounded by a crowd. It's just going to happen. Because somehow people are attracted to people that make them well, right? It just works out. I mean, otherwise you're paying for health care. And maybe you're paying for health care anyway. You're going to find yourself surrounded by a crowd, but here's the deal. At the same time, you're going to find yourself under attack from those whose paradigms you ruin. Always. If you actually do the ministry of Jesus, you're going to find yourself with crowds of people and the people who are going to hate you, and Jesus promises that there will be people who hate you. The people who are going to hate you are the ones who have built false paradigms that you're breaking. That's always going to be true. So, you know, engage in the ministry of Jesus, draw a crowd, have people hate you. That's sort of how this works. Uh, Find yourself under attack. Uh, In fact, Jesus promises this. We're not going to get this far today, but later on, as we talked about this, take up your cross. Like, Jesus promises that this is going to be bad for you. But at the end, that there's a good that comes from it, right? Like, Jesus promises you're going to have enemies. He's like, you know, if they they did this to me, what's what's to make them not do it to you? It's a promise. Welcome. If you're new, glad you're here. (laughs) So Jesus sees this group of people who have just been completely captivated, right? Man, I was dead and now I'm alive. I couldn't see and now I can walk straight line because I can see. There's these people who are captivated by the reality and the message of God's rule and reign and something happens to him. I don't know if you guys caught this. If you see in verse... um, Verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I don't know what you think about when you think about compassion. In the Greek, it's a very interesting word. You know, a lot of times we think of compassion, it's like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I feel, oh, poor you. God bless you. And this is sort of what we mean as compassion. In the Greek, it's like way more guttural. The word for compassion in the Greek is like, my guts were stirred. Like, like you, you know, when you see somebody, like those of you who have kids, how do you respond when your kids are hurting? How do you respond, if you have good relationship with your parents, how do you respond when bad things happen or siblings that you love, how do you respond? There's like a, there's a physical reaction, right? Oh, I can't believe that happened to you. It's not like a sort of disinterested, like, oh man, thanks to be you. 
feel really bad for you. But it's like, right? I mean, how many of you know this, right? You've experienced this. It's like a physical reaction of, oh. And I'm captivated by this. I have this compassion for you. It comes out of my gut. It's a physical reaction. That's the word there. And it's not just that Jesus feels sorry for them or wishes them well. It's that Jesus is stirred internally for these people. Now, why was he stirred with compassion? Why? I mean, there's, that, that, that's, that's the question, right? Why? Because here's a crowd of people who have been touched in some way by the power of the gospel, whether they were healed or they heard about God's rule and reign in the kingdom. They've been touched, and yet they're wandering around, he says, like sheep. Like sheep are stupid, you know that? Like that's that's the sheep dogs. That's why I have dogs. They have shepherds. Like right, it's like, hey, go this way, dummy. Right, that that whole like losing one, like leaving the ninety nine to go lose one. It's more like losing the ninety nine. And okay, I got this one that's actually going where I want it to go. Sheep are stupid. They don't really. Know. <laughs> what's what's better? Sheep are dumb. Sheep are, they're not very smart. They're not intelligent. Right. So it takes a lot to get them to go where you want them to go. And so Jesus looks at these people and says he sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're just all over the place. And somehow these people have been captivated by the gospel, and yet they don't even know what to do. They don't know how to move from here, right? Have you ever prayed for somebody who got well? You pray, some, some of you have done that, right? You pray for somebody, they get well, and what's the response? Duh. What now? You ever pray for somebody? Like, I've seen this happen. I've never done it. I'd love to do it. Seeing somebody who's been wheelchair-bound for years, and you pray for them, and they stand. What do they do now? I've walked in years. Right? I mean, can you imagine all the things that come along with that? Like, I don't even know if I have the muscles to continue to go this way. And, you know, I used to use the ramp, and now I can go steps. And, and I didn't used to. There's jobs now that are open to me. And you find that people who are touched by the kingdom are stunned, right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen that? You've seen people, I mean, I've used this one before, and she's not here, so, uh, but like prayed for, prayed for Ariana whenever we were turning sideways the other night, and she couldn't bend her elbow. And when she bent her elbow after we got done praying, and she was, what did she do? She ran out of the room. <laughs> she didn't know what to do. This happens. Whenever people have been touched by the kingdom of God, what happens is they don't know what to do. And Jesus looks at these people and he's like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Like somebody has to help them walk this life out. And so what does Jesus do? He says, all right, disciples, we're going to pray now. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, one thing I love about the CCO, they hand out these little stickers. So if we got Ray hired, we get Ray hired, I'm going to ask him to give all you guys these stickers. It says 938. And so at 938 every morning, their phones, Ray's phone goes off with an alarm, and he prays, and I've seen Evan do this too, and they pray that God would send workers into the harvest field. I love that, right? We're going to pray because that's true, right? But here's the thing. When Matthew originally wrote this, how many of you know that the chapter distinctions weren't in there? This was a function added later whenever the printing press happened 
and we, you know, this thing became widely available, and we started putting numbers in it so you could find things. Matthew writes this, and there's no, chapter 10 doesn't start there. It's just the next paragraph. Here's what it says. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. There's some context to say this didn't happen right away, but it happened shortly after. And Matthew's trying to make this point that he says, Jesus says, hey, let's pray for the workers of the harvest. Guess who the workers are? It's you. But you're going to continue to pray. And here's the thing. What Jesus is saying here is when you pray for workers to go into the harvest, you do so as one entering the harvest yourself. We we who follow Jesus are never to be those who pray for something we are unwilling to put our hands to. Should never, ever, ever happen. I hear so many people say, and I've heard people pray this, God send revival to our city. God reached the lost, but they're not willing to open their mouths with the gospel. God, help us if we're that kind of people. Heal the sick, God. Bind up the brokenhearted, but we're not willing to get close enough to the sick, and we're not willing to get close enough to the brokenhearted and hear their stories and hear their pain and lay hands on them and say, be well in the name of Jesus. God, help us if we're people who pray for things we're unwilling to be the answer for. We say God will build his church, God will save the lost, God will heal the sick, and God will bind up the brokenhearted. But over and over through scripture, you know who he uses to do that? Regular people like us. And so if we're not people who uh, pray for it and then move uh, to being people who God answers that prayer through, my question is, Do we really believe it? If we're people who say that God will reach the lost and yet, and we pray for God to send workers, but we're not willing to be those workers, do we really believe that God will do it? I found myself at times going, man, we should pray for the sick. And and my first thought is, do I do that? And there's seasons in my life where I'm like, not lately. Do I really believe this is true? If we don't act on it, is it really true? It's true for reaching those who are far from Jesus, but it's also true when it comes to basically everything else, right? You see, to live the Christian life with integrity means that every time you pray for something, you are open to God using you as the solution to that prayer. God, do something about fatherlessness in this city. Would you step into that role for a kid? Would it it be you? 
God cared for the orphan. Would you adopt somebody out of foster care? And before you say yes, like, consider. It's easy to say, yeah, I would. If somebody hands you a kid. Right? Here's one, and I'm going to probably, I won't preface it. God, do something about abortion. God, we're going to pray hard that God will change the hearts of this. this We've got to really, God, would you do something about abortion? Instead of being people who just vote for the candidate that might change a law, maybe. Would you move toward a woman who is at risk for abortion and say, I will care for you and I will care for that kid. And I know this is going to cost me years of my life. It's going to cost me dollars out of my bank account. It's going to cost me emotionally. But I believe that that's what God wants to do. So I, in addition to voting, I'm not saying voting's a bad thing, but would you move yourself to be the solution to that problem? How would we who propose to follow Jesus, we who profess to follow Jesus and value life at all stages respond if we knew the laws would never change? Will we continue to gather in prayer meetings and gather in circles and say, God, change the laws, make it illegal? Or what if God wanted to change hearts rather than in the legal system? What if God wanted to make it so illegal in people's hearts to take a life? And what if it's us that's supposed to move toward those people and out of compassion like our Savior? We're the answer. Voting's fine. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying abortion's a good thing. But what I'm saying is, what if we're the answer? What if we are the answer? What if every one of us said, hey, instead of standing outside of an abortion clinic with a picket sign, I'm going to stand out and say, hey, why don't you come home with me? I'm going to take you home. Let me help you, you care for the emotional trauma that you're going through that says this is a good thing, or that says that this is the only option. I'll adopt that kid. I know you, can't, you, you, don't, you don't want it. I'll adopt the kid. What if that was the life that we lived? What if that's the life Jesus is calling us to live? To be people who would pray for a solution and be open to being the answer to that prayer. Let us never be the kind of deadbeat, false piety, so-called Christians who will pray to God that God will do something about the world's problems and then stand on the sideline pointing fingers and casting judgment to those who haven't changed. We can't do this at a, a distance, guys. We can't change this at a distance. You can make all the laws you want, but until we get life on life in the mess, nothing happens. And we just further the divide between Jesus and the people who need to know Jesus, right? Can we be the kind of people who pray about the brokenness of the world as we're moving toward it? Can we be the kind of people who are praying that God would end poverty? while we're feeding hungry people. You know that, you know, that there's that, uh, that miracle, right, where, where they, Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. You guys know that one? It's like, hey, there's, here's this little bit, and there's like lots of people who are hungry, and there's no way this is going to be enough, but I'm going to just start doing it. And in their hands, he's multiplying it. 
You think they weren't praying? Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. This is the last loaf. What do I There's more. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. There's more. You think they weren't praying? I mean, at the very least, that's the most Christian prayer ever, right? Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, right? More, Lord, right? <laughs> sometimes we're talking for more healing. Sometimes it's more bread. Uh, can we be those people, though, that we are in the middle of the mess? We're saying, Jesus, would you fix this mess? And if you can use me, please do. My 938 prayer, so this goes off at 938. I joined those guys in the, in the whole praying for thing, is... God, would you send workers into the harvest and make me one of them? Send workers into the harvest and make me one of them. Can we be people who are praying that God would deal with cancer as we constantly lay hands on people who suffer in prayer? Can we be the kind of people who agonize over the condition of those who are so far from Jesus? as we pursue sharing the gospel with them and inviting them into relationship. Can we be that kind of people? I mean, it, it, nothing changes if you don't, I've listened to some leadership stuff, right? Nothing changes unless you have a daily habit change. Can we be those kind of people? We say today, and it feels very legalistic, right? So we who are Protestants are like, that feels legalistic, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna, I'm under grace, right? So I'm not gonna create a structure for myself because that feels legalistic. You know what? You never change a habit if it's not something at the very beginning that feels very structured and wooden and clunky, right? Can we be the kind of people that would say, you know what? I am today. Today, I'm going to engage with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and I'm going to try to tell them about Jesus. I'm not going to force it, but today, I'm going to do that. When I wake up tomorrow, today is going to be the day that I talk about Jesus with somebody. And you actually do it. It's why I love what we do in our small groups, these discovery Bible studies, because you know there's two questions. Those of you who are in these, there's two questions at the end of them, right? What am I going to do based on what I just learned from this scripture? What exactly am I going to do? I just learned that Jesus loves creation, so maybe this week I'm going to take up recycling. But I'm actually going to do it. And who am I going to tell? At the end of every Discovery Bible study, we ask those two questions. And it's not like some frou-frou added on, this would be nice if. This is like how you grow, right? I just learned something that Jesus wants to teach me out of Scripture. I am going to find a way this week to apply this to my life and do it. Either that or it'll be gone, right? If we just make it like idealistic, like, oh, God loves people who are far from him. Well, if I ever get a chance to share the, my faith, maybe I will. No, like, make, make a plan and do it, right? Yeah, take the commitment. You see, the life of integrity is one that prays for solutions to the mess because we're standing in the mess with those who are stuck in the mess. Can we be that kind of people who would not be afraid of walking into the nastiness of people's lives for the sake of being the solution to the prayer. Can we be that kind of people? And here's what gets revealed in our hearts. As we begin to kind of consider our prayers that way, we find out whether or not we actually believe what we say we believe. 
It's one thing to say that God cares for the lost. It's quite another thing to go share your faith with the lost, right? I mean, many of us, if we were honest, would say, I don't even have a relationship with somebody that's not loved with me. And maybe the first step for some of us is, I'm going to go meet some people who don't know Jesus and not get offended when they use words I don't use and drink beverages I don't drink and act certain ways that I don't act, but like engage them with the life that you have in Jesus. And for some of us, we may find that if we try to live this life of integrity, we're not going to pray for people who are far from Jesus because that implicates me and I'm going to actually have to do something, so I'd rather not. Can we be those kind of people? If we're going to keep it 100, if we're going to be real, if we're going to actually be real followers of Jesus, can we be people who go after the lost the way Jesus goes after the lost? And let me just say this, Jesus was moved from compassion, and I would suggest to you that the closer you get to Jesus, it ought to change your heart. That what ought to happen to you as you get around people who are far from Jesus is it ought to create a guttural just, oh, I, I want different for you. I want you to know the life I have. Can we be people that pursue that? 